good, Anna. Quarantine's still going on as we're recording this episode. I know. I've been doing a lot of cooking lately. Oh my gosh, me too. And I was just going to say that today during my lunch break, I made some banana bread. Wow. I know. I had like a lot of rotten bananas. It's a very basic baking skill to have banana bread, but I went ahead and baked some banana bread. No, good banana bread is not that easy to make. I I have a bunch of bananas in my freezer. Maybe I'll do that this weekend. You totally should. I added... I had unsweetened coconut flakes, and I saw this Ooh. recipe by Chrissy Tagen, and she put coconut flakes in it. And I was like, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna step up this banana bread today and put some coconut flakes in it. It turned out really good. I wish we could see each other and I'd share it with you. <laughs> I know. I made this thing over the weekend called a Dutch baby, which is basically Ooh. like a really large baked pancake kind of thing. Uh huh. So you can do it. You can just do it in a cast iron skillet. So you. It's just like egg, flour, butter, and milk. But what's really nice is you just dump it all in the cast iron skillet and put that in the oven rather than having to, like, make individual pancakes. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah, I tested powdered sugar on the top. I really would have – it would have been so good with some fresh strawberries or blueberries, but I didn't have any, and I obviously didn't want to go to the store just to get that. But they were – it was really good. Oh, that sounds amazing. And then I made some garlic aioli today. If you learn nothing else from this podcast, I hope I demystify what aioli is. It's just fancy mayonnaise. Like, you can make it yourself. You just mix stuff into mayonnaise. I'm pretty sure Anna taught me how to say aioli because I kept saying aioli. I was like, oh, yeah, I want the burger with the aioli in it. And then whenever we'd go out to eat, she'd be like, no, Henna, it's aioli. Please don't embarrass ever- me here. <laughs> no. Do you, ever have, like, do you ever have those words that you, like, know how to say correctly, but you always read wrong? Yes. So whenever I see Yosemite National Park. Oh my gosh. Anna, I was just thinking. I just say Yosemite. Yes. (laughs) It took me the longest time to get Yosemite correct. I kept seeing Yosemite. Like, I know that's how you say it. And if I say it in a conversation, that's what I say. But whenever I read it, like if I see it written down, I will never say in my head Yosemite. I'll be like, Yosemite. (laughs) I totally feel you. I have the same problem. So instead of some space news today, we thought we'd kind of mix it up. Oh, yeah. We found this really cool article that apparently, in the spirit of remote meetings, for under $100, you can invite a llama or goat to your next corporate Zoom meeting. Yeah, this is real. Anna sent me this article earlier before we started recording, and I just think it's so hilarious. It's, of course, this very hipster thing is done by an animal sanctuary in Silicon Valley. No surprise. It's a great way to make money, and for under $100, you can have, a, like, just a llama or a goat chilling out on your Zoom meeting. This is legitimate. It's hosted by this farm called Sweet Farms, and it's letting people pay to get llamas, goats, and other... Uh, this article, I'm reading it as we're recording, and other farm animals to tune into their video calls for under $100. And the the, the service is called Goat to Meeting? <laughs> Because it's after that thing called Go to Meeting, which is a, like a popular conference offer, but it's Goat to Meeting, and I just thought that was the funniest thing. It's so cute. I think it would be so fun. <laughs> I would I would recommend Googling this, because then you can see the pictures. Like, there's just screenshots of the Zoom meeting grids, and then there's just this one llama sticking out <laughs> in the corner of the <laughs> Zoom grid. 
<laughs> we'll link the article in our sources. It's from businessinsider.com. Like, this is from a legit place. I love it. If you would like to mix up your corporate Zoom meetings, you could get a farm animal and you can support animal sanctuary. That's actually a really good point. It is like when you're paying for it, that money is going to a legitimate farm that's supporting these animals. So that's a good point. All right. Should we start our episode? <laughs> yeah. But first, should we introduce ourselves? Yes. Good idea. I'm Henna. And I'm Anna. And this is... But, but it, it is, is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. All right. Anna, do you want to tell us what the episode is about today? This is a cool one. This was my topic choice. The topic today is we're going to talk about parachutes. And so at first you may be wondering, why are we doing an episode about parachutes? Isn't this supposed to be a podcast about space? And you're right. It is a podcast about space. And we're going to talk about parachute applications for space specifically. We're not really going to go into too much about parachute skydivers would use or paragliders. We're going to talk about their applications in space. I had so much fun researching this topic. It's super cool. And it was a great idea. Thank you. Because at first I was also like, yeah, parachutes, sure. And then I just started reading more and more about parachute applications and how so much different, so many different spacecraft utilize parachutes and how old they date back. Super interesting. Oh my god. So it all started because somebody I know was like, you should do an episode about balutes. It's kind of a combination of balloon and parachutes. And then I was like, ah, we should really just do an episode all about parachutes. Researching this was so much fun, but was also kind of tricky. There's just so much information out there that I had so much trouble deciding what information I wanted to put in here and what information I didn't want to include. So if you're listening to this and you're like, you didn't mention my favorite parachute fact, Please just shoot us a message. You can go to our website. You can contact us there. And we will happily talk about your favorite parachute packs in our next episode. But keep in mind, there was so much info that it took me a really long time just to pick what I was going to put in this. And had the same thing. Yes, absolutely. When we get to my history section, there will be a lot of, all right, let's fast forward to this part of a parachute history. Because parachute history is just so, so dense. I couldn't include everything. Yeah. But yeah, like Anna said, if I'm missing something, if she's missing something, please shoot us a note. We will happily address we're it. We're sure we're missing stuff. If it happens to be your favorite stuff, let us know. Yeah. So there are, essentially, it all comes down to the fact that there are only a few ways to decelerate a large object. This is particularly important in the space industry for a variety of different reasons. The first one being that if you you have reentry capsules that have astronauts or payloads that you would like to get back to Earth, you need to get it back to Earth in one piece with your payload and your astronauts unarmed. That is one thing you would need to decelerate. The other thing that is more common and has popped up more recently in the last couple of years is boosters. So a booster would essentially be the part of the rocket that sends the payload to space. It's the part of the rocket with the engine that you would see reland. In recent years, reusable rockets have started becoming a thing. So you have these large objects that you would like to decelerate to land back on the ground. There are only a few ways to decelerate a large object. The first one being that you can have a large force in the opposite direction. If you're falling down, you can have a large force going up. You'll actually decelerate. The obvious way to do this is to refire a rocket engine. And this is actually utilized to land reusable rocket stages or boosters. Blue Origin's new Shepard booster rocket made the first ever successful vertical landing utilizing this method. And then it was followed by SpaceX's Falcon 9 and Falcon 9 Heavy Boosters. We'll talk more about this a little bit later, and we can do a whole episode on reusability in the future. 
but we're not going to dig too much into that right now. The second way to decelerate a large object is parachutes. <laughs> parachutes have historically been used by re-entry capsules. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but a re-entry capsule would be the portion of the rocket that comes back to Earth with a payload. Sometimes that payload is astronauts. The Apollo program used parachutes to slow their re-entry capsule. The Apollo program is the program that brought astronauts to the moon. Yeah. Good stuff. If you're curious about the lunar module or the Apollo 11 program, go check out our episode on it. So the Apollo... Yeah. I okay, No, go, Hannah. Um, oh, man. I just blanked. I don't remember what episode number it was. I don't know. Just either. move we'll on. Just go forward. Sorry. No, you're good. Yeah. So the Apollo program used... Okay, so why would you use one method over the other? It's a good question, and there's actually a variety of different reasons for this. But one of the major ones is control. There's little to no control over a parachute landing. Once the parachutes deploy, the vehicle is going to land where it's going to land. It's dependent on a large variety of variables, a major one being wind. So if you think about it, if you're trying to fly your kite down at the beach... You have very little control over where the kite is actually going to fly. The wind takes it where it pleases. So there are some ways to get around this. You can gain control with retro thrusters, not with your kite, <laughs> but on a reentry castle. <laughs> I guess you could put retro thrusters on your kite, but that seems like a lot. <laughs> that would be one aggressive kite. That I would be very impressed. So you can gain some control to use something like a retro thruster, which would just be like tiny little thrusters to puff force in various directions, but that's not normally enough to solve the problem. You're kind of just overpowering the parachute at that point, and you're wasting energy. If, like, just, if you think about just trying to control flying a kite, it's really hard to do. And there's actually a really interesting article I stumbled upon that was published in the LA Times in the December of 20... In the December... In December of 2019, titled, Building a Rocket is Hard, But Building a Parachute is Boggling. I thought that was a great name. I love that. I love that name. Um, and it only just it just makes you think of Boggle, like that game my parents used to play. <laughs> oh man, I remember that game. Yeah, it's in like the cube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The article actually goes into the difficulties of parachutes. One of the major ones being that parachutes experience both turbulent and dynamic airflow. This results in their behavior being almost impossible to model. The only re- way to really learn how they will behave is testing. What also gets tricky there is that parachutes are incredibly dependent on your weather conditions. So you have to do a very large number of tests if you're trying to determine parachute behavior. This is part of the reason why something called splashdown landings are so common when parachutes are utilized. So splashdown, all one word, simply means a water landing. If you watch videos of old NASA rocket launches, you can commonly see the splashdown landings of the crew capsules carrying the astronauts. There's actually a really neat video I found on YouTube that we will link in our show notes of the Apollo 11 reentry vehicle carrying Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins bobbing around in the ocean. You don't actually see the parachute landing, but it's still a really cool video. You see the capsule in the water. Oh yeah, that sounds awesome. It is a really neat video. Landing in the water eliminates the need to be incredibly precise with landing location, because for the most part, within this area, you're safe to land in the water. However, this is problematic for rocket boosters which need to have controlled landings and really cannot handle being submerged in water. Yeah. Yeah. So Falcon 9 and Falcon 9 Heavy re-land on boats in the ocean. So they have these landing pads on these big boats. If anything goes wrong, the booster will fall into the water. 
And there's no people on these boats. No, no people on the boats. So you can watch YouTube videos of these rockets landing, but they need to be incredibly precise and controlled with their landing and with their location. Nobody wants rocket boosters attached to parachutes going who knows where. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so it requires precise aim and control of where the vehicle is landing. However, in order to do this, what you're trying to reland needs to have an engine. And it needs to carry enough fuel to relight the engine and to land itself. Both these things add mass. So that's a design challenge in itself, right? To like be able to launch and then when you land, have mass in your fuel, have fuel left over for you to have a successful landing. That's actually entire people's jobs, is to try to determine how much propellant you would burn through a mission and how much propellant you would need to burn to re-land. Because that's also dependent on weather conditions. If you have really strong winds you have to fight through, you're going to carry more propellant. So you have to build in that margin. Exactly. It's really neat. If that is something that you think sounds interesting, you could have a whole career in literally just trying to put together how much propellant a rocket should carry. Yeah, absolutely. It's really neat, and it's really tricky, and it's a really intricate process that involves a lot of math and a lot of analysis. Because of that, you need to have that extra mass, and you need to have an engine to relight to be able to lay in these boosters. That works when you have something like a booster that already has an engine built into it. However, with vehicles that don't necessarily have engines, the question becomes whether or not it's worth building one in. And so we're going to kind of talk about that in a little bit. The next reason why you would choose parachutes over, essentially, a booster or an engine is the next reason has to do with the parachute size. To understand this fully, I'm going to explain how parachutes actually work. Very high-level description, a parachute works by increasing the drag of a falling object such that air resistance overpowers gravity and slows the velocity of the object. You're inducing so much drag that you actually slow down your object. For example, skydivers. You have skydivers that are free-falling. They pull the cord. I've only ever seen skydivers in movies. I've never <laughs> actually seen a person skydive. So they jump out of the plane. They're free-falling. They pull the cord. The parachute deploys, and they slow down. It's because they very quickly increase their air drag. Yeah, I've skydived once. I didn't know that. Did you really? Yeah. I, it was a tandem jump, so I was attached to someone else, professional skydiver. And when they pulled their parachute open, it just hits you, the force, the immediate, like, because you immediately gain so much drag with this giant parachute behind you. It just hits you so hard, like your body jolts as you're, fall as you're like, gracefully falling down now from falling down really fast. You're suddenly, like, it slows down your fall so suddenly. We'll do a little bit of nerdy kinematics here. But uh, any of you who's in physics right now, so if you have position, the derivative of position is velocity. The derivative of velocity is acceleration, and the derivative of acceleration is something called jerk. So when you, a skydiver, or you pulls a string and opens their parachute, what they're actually experiencing would be jerk, because it would be a rapid change in acceleration. Yep, exactly. Not necessarily related, but a fun and interesting science fact. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right, so going into that, Henna actually segues us into this perfectly. Air resistance directly correlates to area. Yes. The best example I could think of is if you have a piece of paper and you have a marble, and we're going to say in this world, they both have the exact same mass, and you drop them from the same height at the same time, the marble will hit the ground first. 
because it experiences less drag. So air is fighting against it less. Like you think about it, you drop a piece of paper, it's gonna, it's not gonna go straight down, it's kinda gonna do this back and forth business. Or you ever get like a receipt blown out of your hand in the parking lot and you're trying to run after it, but it's going in unpredicted directions? That's because of drag. I love that visual. <laughs> I just, the number of times that has happened to me. The same. And I feel some need to run after it because I don't want to litter or I want the receipt in case I want to return my item. Exactly. <laughs> I know you get me. <laughs> I totally do. So, in order to use a parachute to slow an object, you need to ensure your parachute is sized correctly for the mass of the object you're trying to slow. For heavier objects, you need more drag, which means you need a larger area. Yes. Going back to Anna's example about the marble and the piece of paper, what was very, very important about what she said is that they are of the same mass. A falling object is actually subject to two forces, weight and drag, and weight is mass times gravity. And the equation for drag depends on air density, the velocity of the object, and the area it takes over in the air. Exactly. Exactly. So with the marble and the piece of paper that Anna mentioned, since they are of the same mass, we can say that, you know what, gravity is affecting them the same way. What is the variable that we're singling out? We're singling out the area that they take over in the atmosphere. Exactly. So that's why you would see a piece of paper falls slower than a marble because it covers a larger area. It has more drag. Perfect. Great explanation. Thank you. But thanks for the visual, Anna. Love it. Thank you. So I found an entire explanation and walkthrough of how to size a parachute from the University of Idaho. If that is something you are interested in, we will have the link in our show notes. It has all the relevant equations and an example problem. If you're interested, go check it out. However, I'm just going to jump to the conclusion. So in conclusion, the radius of a parachute is proportional to the square root of 2 times the mass of the object times gravity, or the square root of 2 times the weight of the object you are trying to decelerate. As Hannah mentioned, weight is mass times gravity. What I'm trying to communicate to you there is that heavy objects need a really large parachute. And in some cases, the resulting weight of the parachute is actually larger than the propellant or the engine that you would need to slow it down using an engine thruster. Another thing that's important to note is that parachutes used for space applications are not necessarily as light as you would think they would be. Some of them are actually Kevlar, or like a nylon-Kevlar mix. Because of the extreme forces they experience, nylon isn't tough enough. So they actually have to go to Kevlar. So some of them actually have some substantial mass. They're also so large that it compounds, and we'll try to go into that a little bit later. But these parachutes aren't necessarily these light things that you're kind of thinking of. Oh, yeah. So another, now probably obvious, disadvantage of parachutes is the fact that you need air in order for them to function. (laughs) Yes, yes, you need air drag. In order to get air drag, you need air. This isn't really a problem on Earth, but once you leave Earth, once you leave our atmosphere, it can be a little bit more difficult. Exactly. This can make them tricky to use in space. Planets with atmospheres that are thinner than Earth's may still be able to utilize parachutes. A lot of rovers and other equipment landings utilize parachutes. They either need to be significantly larger, so they either need to have a significantly larger surface area or be paired with some kind of thrusting system, like a hybrid solution. Like we mentioned, like I mentioned earlier, drag is based off of air density and the surface area that your object is taking up. In another atmosphere, if it's a thinner atmosphere, its air density will be smaller, so you will get less drag. And that's why you need to increase the area, like Anna said. Yep, exactly. Alright, so we spent a lot of time talking about the disadvantages of parachutes. Let's get into the major advantage. Like I mentioned earlier, it essentially eliminates the need for an engine or thruster to fire. This can save you a significant amount of mass. 
This is particularly important for re-entry vehicles, which need to be really light. Part of this correlates to Solkovsky's rocket equation that we keep bringing up. We can dive into the specifics of that in another episode, or you can look them up yourself. But essentially, these re-entry capsules are the last part of the rocket, and they kind of get a free ride for most of their space journey. They need to be really light. As a result of that, parachutes are commonly used on re-entry capsules for astronaut missions or payload missions, such as the ones mentioned earlier. This, however, does not make them simple by any means. I'm going to talk more specifically about parachute systems utilized for re-entry capsules here. There are a lot of parachutes utilized for a lot of different things, even within space itself. I'm only going to talk about parachutes reutilized on re-entry vehicles. Re-entry capsules, specifically. While not all re-entry capsules utilize the same parachute systems, they all tend to follow a similar series of events. First, you have to physically pack your parachutes. This is a really difficult and important task. These parachutes are huge. So the Apollo program had three main parachutes on the re-entry capsule. Each were 83.5 feet across and covered 7,200 square feet. So for reference, an average home in the U.S. is 2,687 square feet. So that means just a single Apollo parachute was just short of three times the square footage of an average U.S. home. That's amazing. Yes. So one parachute would cover the square footage of three houses in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. So incredible. Uh, I calculated out how many of my apartments it would be in, and I just got depressed. (laughs) (laughs) I like my apartment. I have a tiny apartment. I like it. It's just small. I love it. It's super cute. I love it. (laughs) I was like, could you even get this parachute in my apartment? You're not alone, Anna. I also have a tiny apartment. (laughs) And yours is also super cute. (sighs) So... In order to store them on re-entry capsules, they need to be packed down really efficiently. But if this is done incorrectly, the parachutes could tangle upon being deployed or possibly not deploy at all. Again, in this article I mentioned earlier from the LA Times, it talked about how the packing the parachutes for the Apollo program was so important that only three people in the country were deemed qualified to do it. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it goes even a step further than that. Those three people were not allowed to ride in a car together in case of an accident. Oh my god! So what that means is that they wanted to make sure that if they got in a car accident that resulted in some kind of tragic death, Yeah, they would all be separated. That there could be no one single accident that would kill all of them. That's insane. Yeah. The article actually mentions to be like, they had to make sure that an accident couldn't completely dismantle the entire space program. <laughs> Three people! What a cool, cool fact. Like, that is so interesting. Isn't that neat? These three people, vitally important. If you're curious about how parachutes are packed, I found a cool video explaining how this was done for the Ares 1X flight test. The parachute's actually so long, they have it on, like, a cable system, like, almost like a zip line, so they can, like, pull it towards them. So once your parachutes are packed, you're ready for launch. All right, you're good to go. Your re-entry capsules, it's free fall back down to Earth. You gotta deploy your parachutes. However, you can't just immediately deploy your giant parachutes. You have this large object that weighs a pretty substantial amount, free-falling. It's experiencing extremely high pressures and winds. It might not even be oriented straight up. You can't just let the parachutes go. This could cause them to tangle. It could cause them not to deploy properly. As a result, you need to use something called drogues. These are smaller parachutes that are used to mitigate this. What you do is you launch your drogues. They are deployed before the main parachutes. They slow and stabilize the vehicle, and they create the conditions in which parachutes can be deployed. 
So if you watch videos, you can find a lot of videos on YouTube if you just YouTube or Google space reentry vehicle landing. You can see these parachute landings, and you can actually see the small little parachutes come up first. Those would be the drogues. Super cool. Yeah, it's really neat. I actually didn't know what drogues did for a long time. Once the drogues have done their job, they're cut, they need to get them out of the way, and you need to make room for your main parachutes to deploy. However, in some cases, the main parachutes are actually too large to deploy themselves. In those cases, you have something called pilot parachutes, which are used to essentially lift out the main chutes. These are smaller parachutes were attached basically on cord to the larger parachutes. The smaller parachutes come first, they launch, and then the cording actually pulls out the larger main chutes underneath them. The best way I can think about this is if you had a small balloon and you tied it to a string to a big balloon, if you lifted that small balloon, the big balloon would come with it. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best I could do. That's a beautiful visual, Anna. I love it. Because I used to have a hobby rocket, and I had to have drogues with a regular parachute in there, and that's a really great way to describe it. A smaller balloon attached to the larger one. You're so nice. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. Once you have your main chutes out, you're all ready to land. It's going to land where it lands. You land in the water, you land in the ocean, and then people come get you. Your astronauts have returned to Earth, you have successfully recovered your payload, you're all good to go. Woo! While listening to me talk about this series of events, it can kind of seem like this is an easy feat. It's really not. And I think the LA Times article described it the best. A quote from it directly is, The Rube Goldberg-esque sequence involves explosives, precise timing, and battles against pressure and high winds. If done right, the astronauts will touch down safely. If not, the crew can be killed on impact. All those events I just mentioned, droves, pilot shoots, main shoots, those are all incredibly specifically timed. And what's also tricky is it's really hard to model. So a lot of that timing comes from testing. It's really amazing. And if you're curious more about the technical difficulties that go into parachute design, I recommend you check this article out from the LA Times, or you can do some research of your own on the internet. Parachutes are awesome. They're really amazing. They seem simple on the outside. But utilizing them successfully is really no easy task. Absolutely. Like the amount of precision that goes into every stage of a parachute, um, of parachute packing, of parachute deployment, and then of parachute release, it's mind boggling. The amount of things that can go wrong at any point, if they're packed incorrectly, maybe they won't deploy. If they get deployed a second too early, everything could tangle. If the drogues don't cut, I didn't even go into this, but these parachutes have, like, to get the covers off, you normally need some kind of explosion. I didn't go into it because I was like, I can't even fit this in the podcast episode. <laughs> you have to get the covers off so the parachutes can deploy. If that goes wrong, you could actually get your parachute stuck in its little bucket. It's a really incredible. Yeah. It's some really neat science. Anna, that was a wonderful description of parachute technology. Thank you. I had a really good time researching it. Again, there was just so much info, and there's even just so much cool info I didn't get to include, and I'm sorry, but I tried to give you the greatest hits. Yeah, this is awesome. Definitely the greatest hits. Thank you. I'm excited to hear about the history. Yeah, I'm super excited to share it. But do you want to take a little break first? I would love to. Let's do it. This is kind of unrelated, but my parents and I, we were watching a movie like remotely together. 
my dad was like, all right, I'm going to go three, two, one, go. And I thought that meant he was just like telling me that he was going to go three, two, one, go. And then about 30 seconds later, I was like, wait, did you hit play? Like, I thought that was just like the practice round for what you were going to (laughs) do. Because that's how we do it. So I guess so like in your brain, you were used to, okay, we're going to say that first and then actually initiate the action. Yeah, because it's like, the question is, is it three, two, one, boom? Or is it three, two, one, go, boom? Like, you don't know. Yeah. And so I was like, wait, you, I thought that was the practice. Like, what started the, heck? the movie? <laughs> like, no. Oh. All right. On that note, we're back from our break, if you haven't noticed. We're back. And it really has only been a few minutes. Not a whole three days this time. I'm excited to hear about the history. I'm excited to share with you. All right. The history of the parachute is actually really, really cool. It dates all the way back to the Renaissance era. And the oldest parachute design appears in a manuscript from 1470s in Renaissance Italy. And this design shows a man holding onto a crossbar frame attached to a conical canopy. Conical essentially just means a cone shape. Exactly. Thanks, Anna. Another old parachute finding actually comes from a sketch by Leonardo da Vinci in his Codex Atlanticus, which is also another script. It just makes me think of that old movie Atlantis. Did you ever see that? Yes. Oh my gosh. I was like trying to look for Atlantis as a kid. I'm like, it's out there. I want to find it. <laughs> it, pro- it, it could still be out there. That's a great movie. <laughs> it's such a great movie. Sorry, keep going. You're fine. Codex Atlanticus dates all the way back to 1485. And in his sketch, he actually goes more into the dynamics of the parachute. That first sketch that I mentioned from the 1470s, it was just a drawing. But Leonardo da Vinci's sketch shows more of the physics behind the parachute, and it's a bit more sensible from the proportion of the size of the parachute to the weight of the jumper. Da Vinci's design from his sketch was actually tested in the year 2000 by Britton Nicholas and again in 2008 by the Swiss skydiver Olivier Vietti Teppa. That is brave. Yeah, it is super brave. I'm hoping they did analysis before they just put on a parachute the same size as Da Vinci modeled and jumped off a building or something. Darn, I really hope so. (laughs) But good news, the testing was successful, which is super cool. That is crazy that the same design could hold for this such a long period. Exactly. It just kind of goes to show how smart of a man Da Vinci was. It is. It's also neat. I think it kind of speaks to, in a sense, the timelessness of the original parachute design. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. Now let's fast forward a bit. The first parachute was conceptualized during the Renaissance era, but the first parachute invention, like the first time it was actually physically engineered, was in France by Louis-Sebastien Lenormand. This was done in the 1780s. He did his own sketch for his parachute, and he made the first recorded public jump in 1783. What is with all these very brave people, right? (laughs) Adrenaline seekers, Anna. They're all adrenaline seekers. Whoa, like I made this thing. I don't really know if it's going to work, but I'm just going to jump off a building to prove it. Right? And then do it repeatedly. Like I skydived once and then I was done. I'm like, that's enough. I can't do this. I've never done it. 
And then I hurt my knee, and I'm technically never supposed to. <laughs> but I can still run, which is all I really And you about. keep running. Anna keeps running. I keep running. I do. Yeah, the doctor's like, so your limitation really should be skydiving. And I was like, I guess if that's my limit, like, I'll take it. Like, <laughs> it's pretty good. I love it. So the word parachute was derived in 1785, two years after Lenormand's first recorded jump. The word parachute was termed by Lenormand, who combined three terms. The first term is the Italian prefix para, a form of parare, which means to resist or shroud. The second term he used is the word paro, which means to parry. And the third term is shoot, which is the French word for fall. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty fun fact. Agreed. Wait, so does that mean parachute would be the same word in English as is like the, the American word for it is just the copy of the French word? Yes, exactly. Parachute is just parachute in French. Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it. It makes sense. Cool. I didn't know that. So in movies, we'll see the main characters of these movies jumping out of burning airplanes and using parachutes to safely land on the ground. This concept of using the parachute as a safety measure came into existence the same year the term parachute was derived, and that was 1785. That was a quick jump from, like, we invented this to now we're using them for safety. Right? And it was actually conceptualized by Jean-Pierre Blancard, who demonstrated as a way of safely exiting a hot air balloon. So I guess, like, then they saw it as, oh, you know what, like, oh, we can actually use this as something to safely get us out of these hot air balloons in case something goes wrong. That makes sense. That seems feasible. Yeah. But also, really cool that it was figured out so quickly after the first jump. That is really cool. The first parachute demonstrations were done with a dog as the passenger. I don't know what happened to this dog. I hope the dog was okay. Oh no. (laughs) I hope so too. There was nothing else in what I was reading about what happened to this dog. I'm going to say he's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to assume that too. But Blancard claimed that he did a jump himself in 1793 when his hot air balloon had a tear and he had to use the parachute to safely exit. However, there are no witness accounts on this event. Okay, like, how often did they go in hot air balloons? Because <laughs> it's making it sound like that was their main mode of travel. <laughs> right? Like, it was their one and only activity, their one and only hobby. Hot air ballooning. Hot air ballooning. Oh, man. You know, hot air ballooning always seemed so cool when I was a child. Like, it, they're so beautiful. They are really pretty. Did you do it? I did. I went into a hot air balloon and then I was like, this is so slow and boring. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we go up and I see the view and I'm like, okay, how long did it take us to get here? And now how long is it going to take us to get back down? (laughs) Where where did you hot air balloon? It was like somewhere in California. I'm not remembering. Um, Uh, But it was like sometime in high school. My parents did it. I, I know this because they have we have like pictures in the family room of when they did it. And it's like my dad standing next to them inflating the hot air balloon. <laughs> oh my gosh, I bet that's an awesome picture. It is. It's a really great photo. I love it. Whenever I think of hot air balloons, I think of that photo. All right, let's fast forward 100 years. Two design enhancements were implemented in 1907 by Charles Broadwick that are still used today. That's pretty cool. Like these design enhancements developed in 1907 are still being used today. One, he folded the parachute into his backpack. And two, the folded parachute was pulled from its pack by a static line 
attached to the balloon, and then the static line would snap after becoming taut and pulling the parachute from the pack. I got it. So it would be like a line tethered to the hot air balloon. So he'd jump out, the line would go taut, it would pull the parachute out, and then it would snap, essentially separating him and the parachute from the hot air balloon. Exactly. So right when it would snap, you would have a separation between the parachute and the balloon. So essentially it kind of served the place as like a ripcord would on what would now be a skydiver parachute. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Neat. So basically both of those things are still used by skydivers today. It's in a backpack and it has a cord. Yeah. Neat. (laughs) It is really neat. He showcased these design adjustments when he would jump out of hot air balloons at fairs. But yeah, super cool how these design adjustments are still prevalent today. That is really neat. There's a ton of history surrounding parachutes. So much history. And I know I'm missing a bunch of it. But I really wanted to focus on the history of parachutes in spacecraft. Because we are a space podcast. (laughs) We are a space podcast. Well, I love all things science. I love space a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe a lot of it more. (laughs) Yeah, same, same. (laughs) So several NASA programs utilize the splashdown method, like Anna got into earlier, which is a method used to land spacecraft in a body of water using parachutes. And these parachutes were utilized by Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs to splash down. To land their reentry capsules. Exactly. Gotcha. Another cool part of some NASA history is that the NASA Kennedy Space Center has the Parachute Refurbishment Facility, PRF, which was originally built in 1964, and it supported parachute processing for Gemini and Apollo flights. In 1979, a major addition to the building was completed to support the space shuttle program. And this was specifically for the space shuttle's main drogue and pilot parachutes, which were deployed sequentially as Anna went over to slow down the descent of the solid rocket boosters. And these parachutes allowed NASA to be able to reuse the SRBs. The solid rocket boosters. Exactly. And since its big addition to accommodate the space shuttle program, the PRF has been used to receive, clean, refurbish, pack, and store the pilot, drogue, and main parachutes. Cool. I actually think the video I talked about earlier of the Ares, that parachute is packed in this parachute refurbishment facility. Yes, I did read an article about the Aries, and you are right. The parachutes were packed in this facility. It's neat. It's like entirely set up just for parachutes. It has like an entire dolly system on the ceiling, so you can like reel the parachute in. It's really cool. It's super cool. I would highly recommend Googling images of the PRF. It's super awesome. I think it just speaks to how important parachutes are and the fact that they're like, it, we're going to have a whole facility for them. Exactly. Absolutely. The other interesting fact that I didn't mention was that these parachutes are commonly reused. If they're not damaged, they'll just repack them. So that's, it's like really awesome in that, in the sense of reuse is that you're not wasting more resources trying to create new parachutes every single time. As long as there's not a tear or any other sort of damage, you can reuse these parachutes for flight. Yeah, it's cool. It's just neat that it's an, to an extent, it's a completely reusable system. But the refurbishment facility is really neat. Thanks for calling that out, Hannah. No problem. Thanks, Anna. So in 1992, the first operational demonstration for a braking parachute for the shuttle program was done by Endeavour. Space Shuttle Endeavour landed on the 15,000-foot concrete runway at Edwards Air Force Base 
California, finishing up mission STS-49 in 1992. And it used a 39-foot diameter braking parachute. That's huge. That's really big. <laughs> yeah. And that's big, and that's still only half, that's less than half of the diameter of a single Apollo parachute. Yeah. And how many houses did that cover, Anna? Three. <laughs> Three houses. This would be one and a half. This would be a large home. A large U.S. home. This would be one <laughs> large home. Yeah, that's ins- like all the square footage, all yeah, of the floors. it's huge still. And this 39-foot diameter braking parachute was used to slow down the shuttle and minimize the stress on the brakes and tires. And another super cool fact that I found out about this was that the braking parachute helped reduce the landing rollout by as much as 2,000 feet. What is landing rollout? Landing rollout is the phase of landing from touchdown to taxiing speeds or to a full stop. So that runway length that um, an airplane takes up, or in this case, the shuttle took up, that length was reduced by 2,000 feet by utilizing this braking parachute. Gotcha. So if you've never seen videos of the shuttle landing, it lands like an airplane does. Yes. And it's coming so fast that they can't just use a brake system to stop it. So that's where that parachute system comes in. The shuttle landing videos are really cool. You just see the shuttle landing like an airplane, this parachute um, the being deployed from its back. Super awesome. Sh- you should Google these videos if you're interested. They're really cool. They're, they're really yeah. neat. It's the reason so many people look at the space shuttle and don't realize why it's shaped like an airplane. It's because it lands like an airplane. There is a reason for that. Yeah, that's such a good point. A lot of people don't realize that. And I was surprised to learn that when I was younger. 2,000 feet. That's a substantial distance. Oh, yeah. It is pretty nuts. Like, how much distance was saved. Interestingly, engineers had initially considered breaking parachutes for the shuttle program, but got rid of it from designs in 1974. But then it was reconsidered for Endeavor in the 1990s, late 1980s. And it was the first vehicle to be built with the drag chute. And after its success, it became a standard for the shuttle program. I don't think I realized there was a period of the shuttle program where they didn't use the braking parachute. Yeah, me neither. When I read this fact, I was surprised also. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. Beyond Earth, let's talk about Mars now. We've also seen parachutes being utilized by spacecraft on Mars. NASA's Viking 1 and 2 missions which were composed of an orbiter and a lander, became the first space probes to obtain these high-resolution images of the Martian surface. And data from the spacecraft was actually used to characterize the composition of the atmosphere and surface. Viking 1 was launched August 20, 1975, and arrived at Mars on June 19, 1976. And on July 20, 1976, the Viking 1 lander separated from the orbiter and touched down at Planitia. Viking 2 was launched September 9th, 1975, entered Mars orbit August 7th, 1976, a year later, just like Viking 1 did, and the Viking 2 lander touched down at Utopia Planitia on September 3rd, 1976. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were actually designed to be operational for 90 days, but the Viking spacecraft gathered measurements for more than six years. Super cool. That is cool. The reason I'm mentioning the spacecraft is because the current technology for decelerating from the high speed of atmospheric entry to final stages of landing on Mars comes 
from the NASA Viking program. Like it dates back to the NASA Viking program. Would that be the same system they used on Curiosity? Yes. Awesome question, Anna. It was actually also used to deliver the Curiosity rover to Mars in 2012. I just think that's so amazing that these parachutes that were used in 2012 for Curiosity date back to the 1970s. That's insane. Like the same design. They're like, yep, this is good enough. Yeah, it's still going strong. That's so cool. I also think it speaks to just how hard it is to engineer parachutes. They're like, this works. We're just going to keep using it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I'm sure they've optimized over the design. It's not like any more revolutionary parachute technology has come out since then. And it had to be really hard to test parachutes to lay it in the Martian atmosphere because it's so much thinner than the Earth's atmosphere. Yes. Yes. That I don't even know how you would test that. That's a good point. Like that's, it's just really impressive engineering. Yeah, it's super impressive engineering. I bet so much analysis was taken into account. Oh, completely. It's really impressive. And then also, like, think about it. The composition of Mars atmosphere was understood from images taken by the Viking 1 and 2 missions to Mars. It's like, okay, now we have to come up with assumptions on what the Martian atmosphere is and then determine what our drag coefficient looks like. Oh, yeah, that didn't even occur to me. They didn't even know for certain what was going on over there. (laughs) Right? It's like, what? How did they come up with that? That's insane. That didn't even occur to me. Yeah, actually, now I'm interested in figuring that out. I'll have to look into that some more later. That's really cool. I've never thought about that. All right, so where was I? The parachute that was utilized by the Viking program was made of a lightweight Dacron polyester. It was 16 meters or 53 feet in diameter, and it weighed 50 kilograms or 110 pounds. Yeah, these things are not light. Just like Anna said, not light. But it doesn't mean that, sure, we use this parachute design on Curiosity, but it doesn't mean that engineering parachutes has stopped. The Viking parachute system caps the amount of mass that can be decelerated. So like Anna went into earlier, you know, there's so much mass we can carry for a certain size parachute. And we have future, our future designs for carrying payloads to Mars will have a larger mass requirement for delivery. And we, we kind of talked about this earlier. Because the Martian atmosphere has a much lower air density, the parachutes are going to be have to be significantly larger. Right, exactly. Than they would be on Earth. It just adds another layer to this engineering challenge. Yes, exactly, Anna. Because Mars has this really thin atmosphere, especially at high altitudes, if we want to land on Martian mountains, we will need to evolve the designs from what used to be used for the Viking spacecraft. JPL actually has a team actively working on deceleration hardware. This deceleration hardware includes parachute, inflatables that look like just giant bouncy houses used by spacecraft, so fun. and a bunch more cool ideas. The team that is working on this is called the Low Density Supersonic Decelerators. That's such a cool name. LDSD. It is a really cool name. I would recommend Googling images of some of the concepts that they have come up with. They're pretty cool. I found a really cool article on the NASA website from 2015, and it was an account for a meeting that was held amongst these engineers of the LDSD team, and the article was titled, The Supreme Council of Parachute Experts, and I just love the title. I just thought it was great. That sounds so cool. It sounds like something from a Marvel movie. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh man, I should have become a parachute engineer. I really want... I want to be on a Supreme Council. 
of parachute experts. That sounds so cool. Yeah. But the link for that article, I thought it was a really good read. It was about a meeting that they had in Hawaii testing some concepts that they had developed. Man, it just gets better, doesn't it? (laughs) Right? It just gets better. It's like, oh, if I was a parachute designer, I could go and have these beautiful vacations and test my hardware at the same time. And be a supreme council member. (laughs) A supreme council expert of parachute design. But yeah, the link for that article will be included in our references. That was so neat. Yeah, Anna, that's all I have for the history section. I learned a lot. I actually didn't know most of that. I learned a lot while researching it. This was a really good one. It was. I love this topic. All right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about parachutes today, but how would you feel about taking a break first? Yes, let's take a break. Sounds great to me. Awesome. We will see you in a bit. Let's do this. Let's do this. So we're back from our break, and it's actually been three days. <laughs> it's been a few days. And we wanted to share some really cool space news that has happened in the last three days. Yeah, it's been pretty awesome. The first piece of news that we want to share is that three astronauts landed back on Earth from the ISS. Right now it's about mid-April. We're recording on... March, April 18th. We're recording on April 18th. Yes. In the last three days... Three astronauts landed back on Earth on a Soyuz MS-15 spacecraft. These three astronauts consist of a Russian cosmonaut, Oleg Skripochka, and two NASA astronauts, Andrew Morgan and Jessica Meir. And if Jessica Meir sounds familiar to you, it was because she took part in the first all-women spacewalk with Christina Koch. Pretty awesome. Yeah, I want to say Christina returned in either mid-January or February. Yeah, I think it was February. Upon landing... Mir actually said, I read this in an article, she said that, I think I will feel more isolated on Earth than here. Just because of the new culture surrounding coronavirus, we hope all of you guys are staying safe and healthy. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. They are essentially coming back to an entirely different world. Yeah. So these three astronauts actually spent more than 200 days in space, and they returned to Earth exactly 50 years after the Apollo 13 crew splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. If any of you don't know what Apollo 13 is, it's a pretty major historical event. Essentially, it was a Apollo mission. Throughout the mission, a lot of things went wrong. Really, through the events of the engineers on the ground and the astronauts, they did survive a whole bunch of obstacles, and they ended up surviving. But it was an incredible situation that they survived. It's actually a movie about it. That's really great. Yeah, it's really good. Called Apollo 13. Yeah. The entire situation is amazing that we were able to recover these astronauts. So yeah, a lot of cool stuff is happening. Yeah. Shall we jump on into our podcast, Anna? Yeah, let's get into this. You want to hear about parachutes today? Yes, I definitely do. I'm super excited. So there are actually a lot of parachutes being used today to land re-entry capsules, one of which is Boeing Starliner. It's designed by Boeing, but it will carry NASA astronauts. SpaceX has the Crew Dragon, and Blue Origin's new Shepard crew capsule uses parachutes. All Starliner, Crew Dragon, and new Shepard's crew capsule have not flown astronauts yet, but they're planning to. And on that note, actually a lot of space news has happened in the last couple of days. The date for the first flight of astronauts in Crew Dragon was announced, and that will be on May 27th. 
The first flight of NASA astronauts from U.S. soil in nearly nine years. That's super. Is finally going to happen again. That's really exciting. We have not launched astronauts on U.S. soil since the shuttle program was canceled. Yeah. This is a major event. Yes, it is a major event. It's a major event for many reasons. We kind of talked about this a little bit in the intro to the last episode we did. Space hibernation. Thank you. No problem. This will be the first time a private space company has launched astronauts. Virgin Galactic has launched astronauts, but they technically have not gone into space. They have not passed the Kármán line. Right. So this will be the first time astronauts from a private space company. So it's the Crew Dragon, which is on top of the Falcon 9 boosters, all of which are SpaceX. So that's a really big deal, and it will be really cool to watch. I'm really excited about it. Me too. New Shepard and Starliner also have plans to launch astronauts in the future. Dragon actually has a splashdown landing. The Dragon astronauts will land in the Atlantic Ocean. However, Starliner lands in White Sands, New Mexico, and you can see YouTube videos of this, and the New Shepard crew capsule lands in the desert in West Texas. I kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but it is difficult to slow a reentry capsule from what is essentially free fall to a safe speed at which to hit the ground, which is part of the reason why water landings are common, because water has give. You can safely land a crew capsule in water at higher speeds than you could land it on the ground. Like, if you think about it, you can jump off a 10-foot diving board into the water and be fine. You cannot jump off a 10-foot diving board and land on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) That would be terrible. Yes, it would be really bad. Both Starliner and the New Shepard crew capsule utilize a secondary system in conjunction with the parachutes. Starliner uses what is essentially an airbag. This is actually really neat. I watched a documentary on this. Yeah. Pretty sure it was a PBS, like Nova documentary. On what is essentially, so it's essentially an airbag that deploys right before the parachutes, excuse me, that deploys right before it hits the ground. And what's also neat, and something I didn't know, is that airbags have holes in them. Because it needs to inflate, but then what slows down the force is the initial inflation, but then the slow draining of air. Oh. If you think about it, if you got in a car accident and your airbag deployed and you just slammed into a fully taut airbag, that wouldn't get you anywhere. That would just hurt. When it has the holes in it, that means when you slam into it, it actually slows your impact because the air is draining as you apply force to it. That makes sense. That makes sense. So it's not like you're head is bouncing back off of this really tightly inflated airbag. It's when your head hits it, it catches it like a pillow, and then it slowly whooshes out the air. Exactly. And because it has little holes, the air takes a while to escape. That makes sense. Yes. I actually never knew that about airbags. Me neither. And it's the same system for this Boeing Starliner. Yeah, but it makes sense. Just slamming into a fully taut airbag would hurt and not fix the problem. (laughs) So I thought that was cool. That would be hilarious if it was just a fully taut bouncy house. This capsule is just bouncing around the poor Martian surface. <laughs> yes, it would do nothing. Or it's, it lands on Earth, too. It would just, like, bounce around on the ground. It wouldn't do anything. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> I've got Mars on the mind because I'm going to talk about Mars in the future. But, yeah, the Earth's surface. You would slam equally hard just into a pillow of air. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, so it's actually, it's the initial hit and then the slow drain of the air. So that, in conjunction with the parachutes, significantly lessens the force. New Shepard's crew capsule fires a retro rocket system right before a touchdown. So essentially it has these little little retro rockets. So right before it hits, they fire, and it puts a force in the opposite direction, again, lessening that impact right before it hits. If you look at videos of any of these capsules landing, you'll see that they have multiple parachutes, and this is for redundancy. 
So if something happens to one of the parachutes, or in some cases more, the capsule will still be able to land safely. This is really important for obvious reasons. And this is commonly tested. Blue Origin conducted a test back in July of 2016 using two parachutes. They normally have three to show a safe landing was still possible. And the test was successful. And I believe you can watch videos of this on YouTube. This brings me into just an interesting thought-provoking point about redundancy. So you have redundancy to be redundant. Look at that. You have redundancy (laughs) to allow room for things to go wrong. Yes. And so you have backup systems. In the case of parachutes, you have three when you really maybe only need two or one. And it brings up a really interesting idea of redundancy. If you have three parachutes that are all packed by the same person, are those redundant? Because there's one argument to say yes, because you have three parachutes. The other argument is if you have the same person packing all three, if that person makes a mistake the first time, they're probably going to make the same mistake the other two times. That is such an interesting point. Right? It's just a really interesting, like, I have no idea what the answer is. The same thing goes for even just manufacturing your products. Right. If you have three redundant sensors or more redundant sensors, if they're all made by the same factory at the same time, it could be possible to assume that if they make a mistake on one of them, they're going to make a mistake on the rest. Are they still redundant? Right. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's just one of those questions that I think is a really interesting, thought-provoking question. I think it's super interesting. And it's like, where do you draw the line? Because you could say that, say there's a manufacturing defect in one of these sensors that, like in the example you brought up. Completely. What if it's just like something just momentarily goes wrong in the factory for that one unit, but the other two units could be fine? It's like, we don't know what that probability is. And that's actually, being in aerospace engineering, we do a lot of failure modes analysis. Yeah. And we do a lot of reliability analysis. Yeah. In reliability analysis, you actually put a probability of failure to each of these points where failure can occur, and then you compound that. So I would be interested to see like that kind of analysis done with something like this in the case of parachutes. It's like if you have the same person packing all three parachutes, how much does that probability of failure value increase? Yeah, I don't know. And I think the same goes for things like if you have sensors... If there's a mistake in a factory, like let's say, I don't know, you're using like you're using a metallic kind of sensor. Let's say the metal mixture is wrong. Then essentially every sensor made that day will use that same mixture and they'll all be wrong. Right. So I don't know. Does that mean you have to track down when all the sensors were made and get them from different days or different factories? I don't know. Or do you have different people pack all the parachutes? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It is an interesting question. And I think that like, In engineering, you have to accept a level of risk in any sort of situation. And then it's up to systems engineers to determine, you know, what is that number at which probability of failure, that risk value that we're okay with flying a spacecraft. Yes. But yeah, that is an interesting question, Anna. Isn't it? I I don't know the answer, but I do think it's interesting to think about. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Some good shower thoughts. Definitely. Some good right before bed. Thoughts. Good brain scratcher. <laughs> exactly. That's all I had for parachutes of today. Do you want to talk to us about the future? Yes, I'd love to. In this episode, we've talked a bunch about spacecraft in the U.S. and pick some interesting space missions that other countries are working on. Ooh. Yeah. And I found some really interesting stuff. I'm focusing on two missions. The first one is this mission called ExoMars, and it's planned for... 2022. It's a joint mission between ESA 
and Roscosmos. ESA, for those of you who don't know, is the European Space Agency, and it's headquartered in Paris, France. It includes 22 states, and there's just too many to list, but a few of them are France, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, and the Netherlands. I don't think I realized it was in Paris. Yeah. I'm sure they have offices all over Europe. Yeah, completely. But headquartered in Paris, France. Cool. Yeah, super cool. And Roscosmos is headquartered in Moscow, Russia. It's responsible for space flight programs by the Russian Federation. The whole purpose of ExoMars 2022 is to determine if life has ever existed on Mars, and also to understand what's been the history of water's presence on the Martian surface. What's really cool about ExoMars is that its rover has a drill that can go, that can drill up to two meters below the Martian surface. Yeah, it's super cool. Two meters, which is about 6.5 feet, six and a half feet. This is actually the deepest we will ever drill down below the Martian surface. And scientists are really hoping that signs of life are preserved at this kind of depth. ExoMars will also have a small lab on the rover to analyze the collected samples from drilling down under the surface. So that's a little bit of background about ExoMars. Let's dive into the parachutes. I found this really cool graphic on the ESA website that shows the sequence of events of how all of the different parachutes will deploy. I'm just going to dive into that sequence right now. The rover is part of an entry module, and as the entry module enters the Martian atmosphere, that module has this disc-shaped protective covering that is called an aeroshell. And at initial entry, it gets really, really hot because you have the spacecraft traveling super fast through a very Mm -hmm. thin atmosphere. So it's going to get super hot on that spacecraft. This aeroshell, which is this disc-shaped covering, is going to protect that entry module. And this disc-shaped covering is on the underside of this module. Gotcha. Okay. Initially, what's going to happen is that the aeroshell is going to be used to slow it down and to protect it from all the heat buildup. And then when it slows down a bit, we'll have our first pilot chute deploy. And the first pilot chute deploys, and soon after, the first main chute deploys while the module is traveling at a speed faster than the speed of sound, which is also known as supersonic speeds. Yes. The first pilot chute will detach and fly away, and it will put the first main parachute in the spotlight. The first main chute for ExoMars is going to be 15 meters in diameter, or 49 feet, which is pretty huge. That is pretty huge. As this main chute and this entry module are flying through the Martian atmosphere, the main chute will eventually be released, and the second pilot will deploy and pull out the second stage main once the module has achieved subsonic speeds, which is slower than the speed of sound. Gotcha. Yes. We can do a whole episode about light speed and supersonic travel. Yeah, totally. I think that would be kind of cool. It would be really cool. I would love to do that with you. I would love to do it with you too. (laughs) I had someone else in mind, but I guess you'll work. (laughs) The way we spend our time. (laughs) Oh man, I was so nervous you wouldn't pick me. Um, so the second stage main is 35 meters in diameter, which is 115 feet. It will be the largest parachute to ever fly on Mars. 115 feet. Whoa. It probably has to be that big because of the decreased atmosphere. Exactly. Exactly. 
And what's really interesting, so I read this, what's really interesting is that the second pilot chute will stay attached to the main parachute, and the engineers have designed it this way as an effort to prevent rebound on the deployed parachute. So I searched the term parachute rebound, and I couldn't find a good technical definition on it. So we took our best guess at what it could be, and Anna and I actually, I discussed it with her. I was like, hey, Anna, I found this term in my research, and I haven't been able to find a definition anywhere. And we discussed it, and we came to a conclusion. So this is what we think it means. We think it means that initially, because of the second pilot shoot, what you have is that your coefficient of drag is increased. And if you were to let go of that and immediately release the second main, in that immediate moment, that coefficient of drag would fall into the negative. So it would go in the negative direction. And since it would decrease so quickly, it could cause the parachute to collapse. And this is what we think it means. If there's a parachute expert out there who thinks we're absolutely wrong, please message us, use the contact us page on our website to let us know what the definition is and we will correct ourselves in the next episode. Yeah, we t- I tried to find it too. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. Nothing came up. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing I can think of is because you're going, you're essentially decreasing your surface area really quickly. Yes. 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 But I don't know. Hannah doesn't know. That's just our best guess. It's our best guess. But yeah. An inference, if you will. I love that word. An inference. It makes me think of my eighth grade science class. (laughs) An educated guess. An educated guess. That's right. It is second grade. Wait, Wait, any of you in eighth grade science? Eighth grade science. (laughs) There you go. Uh, um, That's a really, you're, you had a very good technical explanation of that though. Thanks, Anna. You did too. We both have basically a similar explanation. But yeah, thanks for good teamwork. thanks for leading teamwork. that discussion. Yes, good teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to where I was. I read an article published about 10 days ago about how the launch for ExoMars was actually pushed to 2022. It was supposed to happen this year, but due to some technical issues, of which some of them involve the parachute system, the launch has been pushed. And I'm sure also some of it is because of, you know, the pandemic that's happening. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see that with a lot of launches. Yeah, so we'll stay tuned to uh, see what those news updates are. Anyways, this article didn't really go into detail about what exactly needed to be done for the parachute system and what exactly needed to be worked on. I'll just stay tuned uh, to the news to see if any more information gets published about that. That's what I have for ExoMars. The second mission I chose was a mission that is being done by China. The China Aerospace and Technology Corporation, CASC, is working with the National Space Science Center in Beijing, and that is NSSC, and they are working on a Mars orbiter, lander, and rover. And this is super exciting because this could make China the second country to land and operate a spacecraft on the Martian surface after NASA, when NASA was the first to launch and land and operate its Viking landers in 1976. This is the case if you don't count the former Soviet Union's 1971 Mars 3 mission. I had no idea what the Mars 3 mission was, so I went exploring on the internet to find out more about it. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. 
Yeah, and it's actually really interesting. In 1971, apparently, the Soviet Union had landed a, a spacecraft on the Martian surface, and it had started transmitting data to its orbiter, but it had stopped transmitting data only 20 seconds after its initial transmission, which is so sad. Oh, no. I know. That's so, like, just as an engineer, that's that would, like, the fact that it lands, and you're like, oh, my God, it made it, it's transmitting, and then it's only 20 seconds, that's just so, so sad. It's so devastating. It's that's really heart-wrenching. It really is. It's like you put so many, so many long, long months of your life, years of your life into this spacecraft, and then you're celebrating because it's starting to transmit data. And then just 20 seconds after that, it's just devastation. It's so sad. Yeah. But for the Mars 3 mission, it's actually unknown what whether it was an issue with the actual lander or if it was an issue with the orbiter transmitting the data back to Earth. So actually, I didn't explain the definitions of orbiter, lander, and rover. For those of you who don't know, an orbiter will orbit a planet, and it will mostly be used for observations regarding like weather or getting data back from the lander and transmitting it over back to Earth. A lander will be a part of a module, an entry module, that will land with the rover and basically set up base at a spot. In this case, for Mars, it would just set up on one spot on the Martian surface, and then the rover will be released. And the rover is this giant vehicle that will just travel around Mars searching for samples, searching for data. Just a quick aside, I, kn- I realized I hadn't explained those three terms before. That was great. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Back to the Mars orbiter, lander, and rover that China is developing. China is developing, this is actually referred to as Huoxing-1, and Huoxing means Mars. As of three weeks ago, China was still planning on launching in July 2020, but with the current pandemic, again, we'll keep an eye on the news to see if there if this changes at all. I'm sure you all know it's a very dynamic environment. Exactly, exactly. The Chinese lander will carry the rover and it will have parachutes on it. But again, not any details on what this parachute system looks like. Hopefully some more information will come out and we can learn a bit more about Huoxing-1. But I think it is super exciting that China's working on this. That is cool. Yeah, Yeah, man, a lot of Mars hype going down. Yeah, and a lot of just, like, worldwide space work (laughs) going on. Yeah, it's great. I think space is cool. I'm happy space is starting to become cool again. It's not even starting. It is cool again. It is cool, yeah. But yeah, that's all I have for my section, Anna. Should we dive into our sources? Yeah, yeah. You want me to go first? Yes, please. All right, so I got a whole bunch. The first one, I found an article from Wired Magazine, which talks about SpaceX and Boeing and essentially talks about the Starliner. I found a Wikipedia article about vertical takeoff, vertical landing. I found a NASA article that has all the drag equations in it. They're technically talking about model rockets, but for the purposes I need it, that was close enough. I found the whole one from the University of Idaho about how to size a parachute. There's the YouTube video about the Apollo 11 astronaut re-entry. There's a YouTube video about Dragon's re-entry splashdown that you can watch. There's the video about the Ares parachute packing. I went to the SpaceX website to learn about Dragon. I went to the NASA website to learn about Orion parachutes, which is another future project. I went to Wikipedia to learn about the new Shepard crew capsule. I went to GeekWire to learn about the launch 
where Blue Origin landed with one less parachute. Again, a Space.com article about Boeing Starliner. History.com article about moon landing technology. Essentially looking for Apollo 11. Oh, and then I was like, what is this source? I was like, huh. it's how many square feet an average home is. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I listed the source to that. That was a really great visual, Anna. I'm so glad you included that. All right, Hannah, what do you got? I also went to Wikipedia to start my parachute history research. And then after that, I checked out this article in Air and Space titled How Things Work, Whole Airplane Parachute. Beyond that, I used a ton of NASA, JPL, and ESA websites for all the different missions, all the different parachutes. And I'll have all of those listed in the sources. For Hoshing 1, the Chinese Mars rover... I went to Wikipedia and space.com to find out about that news. For the Soviet Union's Mars 3, I also used a NASA website for that. And then for our awesome news tidbit, right after our uh, second break, I used an article from ecowatch.com and I have that source listed as well. This was a super fun episode, Anna. I had a great time researching parachutes and parachutes in space. I really liked this one, too. I think it's, they're really important, but I don't think they're always thought of when you think about spaceflight. Exactly what you said. Not thought of, but such a huge engineering design challenge that we need to pay it some respect. Well, this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Doing our part here? Yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening, if you've made it this far. (laughs) You can find us on Instagram at... But it is rocket science. You can find us on Twitter at But It Is RS. On Facebook as But It Is Rocket Science. We have a website, but it is rocketscience.com, and there you can actually reach our contact us page. You can also check it out if you want to learn a little bit more about Henna and I. Yeah. And then as per usual, all our sources will be in the show notes, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, if you enjoy this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It will really help us out. Yeah, please do. Please rate us, review us, send us feedback. We love all of it. Tell your friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you have any future episode ideas, shoot them on over. We're interested to know what you guys want to hear about. Heck yeah. Please do. Sooner or later, we're going to we're gonna need a little bit of help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, awesome. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one. Lift off! (laughs) Nice. Nice.